that has grown in his love for God's word. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We are beginning a new series today. Um, and it's called, it's called uh, The Five Solas. And we're looking at the battle cry of the Reformation. Now let me begin, I, I want to first begin by saying what are the five solas, and we'll kind of walk through what we're doing here. The five solas are scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, glory alone. So where did they come from? Um, they emerged 500 years ago during what is called the Protestant Reformation. In 1517, October 31st, Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the Wittenberg door in order to begin a conversation with the church. The Catholic Church at that moment had begun to practice what is known as indulgences. An indulgence is a partial or full remission of temporal punishment for sins. It's kind of like a get-out-of-jail-free card. If you, um, you could purchase an indulgence for yourself, for a loved one, a family member, or even someone who had already died. And an indulgence would supposedly cover the payment for your sin as if you had never committed it. So effectively, what the indulgences did was removed Jesus Christ for the need of salvation. Martin Luther uh, was being a good Catholic at this moment by nailing the thesis to Wittenberg door. That was a common way to start a conversation. However, it became apparent that the Catholic Church was not wanting to have a conversation, and Martin Luther was labeled a heretic. What had happened is that the Catholic Church had elevated uh, the papacy, the Pope, and tradition to that of Scripture. But in reality, they elevated them above Scripture. And uh, that is how they began uh, creating new doctrines, like the selling of indulgences. And so what happened is no longer was salvation by Christ alone, uh, through Christ alone, by grace alone, or through faith alone, but Jesus could be bypassed for an indulgence. And so this is what Luther said at one moment. A simple layman armed with the scripture is to be believed above a pope or a council without it. As for the Pope's decretal on indulgences, I say that neither the church nor the Pope can establish articles of faith. They must come from Scripture. For the sake of Scripture, we should reject Pope and councils. So at this moment, 500 years ago, Martin Luther stands up and said, we need to reject the Pope and the council. Now this moment, I mean, he's being labeled a heretic for this, and this is where the Protestant Reformation is birth. Martin Luther calls the Pope and the Catholic Church an apostate, and therefore a, uh, the Protestant Reformation begins, and that is why you and I and we are all here today. We're part of the wake of the Protestant Reformation. Protestant means we protested the indulgences. We protested what the Roman Catholic Church was doing, and thus that is where we are today. And at the heart of the Reformation were these five solas. It was a declaration that God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for God's glory alone. Now, when we say that these five solas emerged from the Reformation, we don't mean that they began at the Reformation. That's not when they came into existence. Luther and Calvin and the other reformers were not about trying to introduce new doctrine. 
That's what the Roman Catholic Church was doing. Rather than doing something new, they were trying to take us back to something old. They were trying to take us back to the Word of God. They wanted to look at what Jesus said, what the apostles were doing. When you, you saw that video up here earlier about the if gathering, and they say, we want to go back to the book of Acts. That's what Martin Luther and the, and the reformers were saying. We said, we want to go back to the word of God. We want to see what the early church did. We want to see how the apostles talked, how Jesus talked. And so that is where these truths emerge from. Not at the Reformation, but we see them all throughout God's word. And they were simply brought about, their attention was brought about at the Reformation because of the, where the Roman Catholic Church was going. And so why are we going to look at them today? Well, I want to give you at least four reasons why we're going to, in the next five weeks, look at the five solos. What we're going to do is we're going to look at one each week. Number one, they're the doctrines of God's Word. Primarily, we're looking at them that we'd understand God's word, that we'd understand who God is, we'd understand our salvation, who we are because of what Jesus Christ has done. Secondly, there are history. It was the embracing of these solas that preserved the church. When the Roman Catholic Church detoured and decided to add new doctrine to the word of God, it was these solas that emerged that was able to establish and maintain the church. Number three, we must embrace them today because the scripture, the solas, are under attack just as much as they are today as they were 500 years ago. Scripture is undermined in many local churches today. The Catholic Church is one example of this. And I'll mention the Catholic Church a couple times today. My goal is not to try to demean them, but simply highlight this is where history is and these are the beliefs that they have. And uh, in 1817, the first Vatican Council officially declared papal infallibility, meaning the Pope is infallible. He does not err. When he speaks, it is the word of God. In 1962, at the second Vatican Council, it was affirmed that the Pope speaks with the same authority as the Apostle Peter, and therefore his words are inspired and thus equal to the authority of Scripture. And what they mean, though, is that when the Pope speaks, if it differs from Scripture, the Pope's new revelation trumps old revelation and so they haven't made the pope equal with scripture which would be wrong enough as it is but they have made him above scripture and the catholic church is one of many examples of countless examples of churches and denominations that are abandoning the word of god today and we'll look at that a little bit as we go through Fourth, the last reason, by embracing these five solas, not only will we grow in our faith, but this is the means in which we will accomplish the very mission that God has given us to make disciples who make disciples. Understanding God's word, that it's through the preaching of the word, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, for the glory of God alone, that the gospel will go out that more and more people would understand it and believe. And so what we're going to do is we're going to dig into 2 Timothy chapter 3 today, and, uh, and we're going to look at Scripture alone. And so our practice is to stand when we read God's Word, so I want to encourage you to go ahead and stand. We're going to read all of chapter 3 and the first couple verses of chapter 4. Chapter 3, verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, 
lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and we open your word and we ask for your wisdom. May your spirit work powerfully at this moment as we read your word. Give us understanding. Lord, we thank you for the gift that your word is, that it comes as a revelation from you as our final authority. God, we thank you that through your word that we come to faith. Through your word, we grow in our faith. Through your word, God, we grow in our understanding of the gospel that we might proclaim the gospel to others. Lord, I pray that as a church through today, the reading and the preaching of your word, that we together would grow more in love with your word. May your spirit convict us, may it grow us, may it increase our desire for your word today, that we would be a church that loves your word, that practices your word. God, be with us this morning. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So we begin in chapter 3 with a description of the last days. That's the first nine verses that we have. And so I've just kind of given a few points there in in your bulletin that help guide us. The first one is is time. What are we looking at? When is this taking place? In verse 1, we're told that in the last days will come times of difficulty. The word difficulty means danger and hard. So when is these last days? Paul is warning Timothy, in these last days, it's going to be hard. When did these last days begin? Well, Peter, in Acts chapter 2, in ch- chapter two quoted the Old Testament prophet Joel saying, the last days have 
begun. And what we see when we go throughout Scripture, the last days begin at the ascension of Jesus Christ, and they continue until the return of Jesus Christ. So what we're talking about is the age of the church. We're talking about the very time that we live in right now. So what Paul is telling Timothy, he's saying, look, church is going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. Now, why? Well, because there's these people. That's the next section. And in verses 2 through 9, Paul gives a long descriptive list of a group of people with no less than at least 19 descriptions. And it's a hideous list. I mean, if you look at it, he's describing a selfish, materialistic, hedonistic, prideful, abusive, rude, rebellious, and unloving people. Look at verse 8. It's especially damning. These people oppose the truth. They're corrupt in mind. They're disqualified regarding the faith. So Paul, what he's doing, he's describing ungodly people. But why? Why is he telling us this? And that's because of the location of these people. They're in the church. There's no point to, to tell Timothy, look, during the church age, there's going to be ungodly people. Okay, we know that. All unbelievers are ungodly. Everyone who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ is characterized by ungodliness. We understand that. So why do you need to warn us about that, Paul? Because these people are within the church. Notice verse 5. We're told these ungodly people have an appearance of godliness. The danger is there are people who do not love God, do not love the gospel, do not love others, and they're going to be coming into the church. And it's going to be hard to spot them. Now, why? It's because they don't wear name tags. You know, we don't have arrogant, abusive, jerk, you know, name tags that people go, oh, that's me. I'll put that on. Everyone knows I'm a false teacher. Everyone knows why I'm here. It's not really for your benefit. It's for my benefit. What we're told is, is that these people are going to, to sneak in. And they're, they're most likely going to look really good. Remember what Jesus called the Pharisees, white washed tombs they look good on the outside but inside they're dead and decaying bones so most likely these people that they would come into the church and they'd have probably really good personalities everyone would like them they probably have great high morals and people would go i really like this guy he's got a great job he seems to have all of life put together morally it seems like he keeps 10 commandments he probably keeps 12 or 14 or 15 commandments he is amazing this guy should probably become a deacon, probably an elder. What we see is that these people are probably going to desire to move into leadership-type positions. But the thing is, is they don't actually care about the church. They're not gathering for the glory of God. These people are not characterized by love, by humility, by thankfulness, or kindness. Now, verse 9 says, eventually they will be noticed. But we must realize that there's going to be a period of time that we won't notice them, that we'll be unsure. Are they believers? Are they not believers? Where are they? And so, uh, and, and this should not be surprising. If you've read the New Testament, you see regularly that the New Testament is threatened by false teachers or the churches. In Acts chapter 20, Paul, he's meeting with the Ephesian elders, probably the last time he's going to see them. And what does he tell them? Guys, there's going to be wolves who come, and there's also going to be wolves that come within the church. So not just from the outside, but there's going to be those that emerge from within the church. 
the book of Jude. You should go read the book of Jude. It, it's one chapter. So if you're doing a Bible reading plan, you can read a whole book of the Bible today. Super easy. So it's kind of fun. Only 65 books left. Um, so Jude, he wants to write on the, on the faith that we have together. He says, I want to write about the common gospel that we share, the good news of Jesus Christ. But he says, look, I can't. This is what he says in verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So Jude says, I want to write to you about the gospel, but I can't write to you about the gospel because there's this threat that's coming, and I want you to be aware of this threat, that there are people who are going to be coming into the church that do not love God. Rather than promoting unity and love for God, they're going to be promoting division. And so the response, what does Paul call Timothy to do? Well, look at verse 5. At the very end of it, he says, avoid such people. So if you put this together, look at verse 1. Understand this. There will come times of great difficulty in the last days. Then he gives a description. And then the response, avoid these people. That, that's the flow of this argument. In the last days, it's going to be very difficult because ungodly people are going to be coming within the church. This is what you do, Timothy. Avoid them. We're not to let them move into leadership positions. We're not to let them influence the church. We're not to participate with them. Now, real quick, this doesn't mean that unbelievers cannot gather with the church. It doesn't mean that we, we bar the doors. But it does mean that we know that there are some people who are not gathering because they're interested in the gospel. They're not gathering because they're, they're simply checking out what it is that we do and what it is that we believe. But they're coming to cause division. So what does it mean? We're to avoid them. But what happens if we don't avoid them? Or to ask it this way, what is going to be a tendency that every church will have to deal with? What, what, is, what is some of the, um, the ways that the wind will blow within a church? What are, we, what are some of the issues that we're going to regularly deal with in the last days? So I came up with three things, and there's many more, but at least three. We'll deal with a loss of sin. Now what I mean by that is that the church will be tempted to not call sin, sin. In fact, what's going to happen is that churches will often just say, you know, we're just broken people. We're broken people. Now, broken people, it's not necessarily wrong to say that. But what happens is rather than using the words that the Bible uses, like we're rebels against God, we're under his wrath, we're his enemies, we actively rebel against God, we simply say we're broken. We're just not all put together. And what does something broken need? Well, it just needs to be put together. It just needs a little bit of help. And so when we begin thinking more that we're broken rather than that we're rebels, I don't necessarily need grace. I don't necessarily just need faith. I kind of more need therapy. I need a God who's going to give me tips. I need a God who's going to give me good advice, which is why then you'll have sermons predominantly about three steps to a better you. Six steps to a better marriage. Have you ever been to, to places where the predominant message is, I'll give you three steps, four steps, six steps, eight steps. This will transform your marriage. This will make you a better parent. This will make you a better this. 
And when this happens, no longer do I really need Jesus. So there goes grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. But rather, I just need direction. I just need a pick-me-up. Not only will we lose sin, but we'll also struggle with the loss of Scripture. The church, in the last days, because there will be people who will be a part of it, there will be people who don't want to hear the Word of God, or at least not all of it. Some people will say, you know, it's kind of offensive. We might not want to preach all of it. It's a little outdated. Maybe we need to, to update it some. Maybe we should just pick the parts that are a little bit more palatable. And so Scripture alone now moves off the table. Proof of this is what we read earlier, the Vatican Council, the first one and the second one. Other proofs are that churches are ordaining women to be elders. Homosexuality is no longer considered to be a sin. The, uh, requiring the gift of tongues to be true members of the church. No longer is, mer- or no longer is divorce seemed as a sin. It seemed as mainly meaning or mainly a thing that, yeah, that's what happens in this world, and that's okay if you get divorced. Um, pastors are even advocating that even if all the Bible is not true, it doesn't really change the message. So it's okay if you don't want to believe all of the Bible. Those are messages that are being proclaimed regularly in churches today. And in fact, I would say, when you go to the Christian bookstore, those are books that you can regularly and very easily pick up, and the problem is because they're under the banner Christian, you often don't realize what you're picking up. And if we lose sin, if we lose Scripture, ultimately what we're losing, we're losing the gospel. And when the gospel is lost, no longer will the church be different than the world, but rather the church will look very similar. In fact, what's going to happen is that the churches are going to look like giant social clubs. And what they're going to do is they're going to offer a smorgasbord of programs that you get to choose from. So church becomes about serving you, about making you happy. This is where church shopping occurs a lot. I mean, what do you? What church has a wanna? That's the church I will go to. This church stopped having a wanna. Now I will go find a church that has what I want that will serve my family. Or you pick the program, you pick what it has, and that's what happens. If the church offers it, we go there. If another church offers maybe a better Awana or a better program, then we'll simply change membership and we'll begin going there because church is about making me happy and serving my needs. And so I will choose the church that offers the largest options available. When I was in Michigan, there was a church plant that played the Beach Boys for their worship songs and other oldies. So one time I met the worship leader, and so I said, why? Now, it's really hard when you're a pastor to ask why at that point and not sound like that condescending jerk. Uh, so I might have done that. I don't know. But I said, why do, you, why do you guys play the Beach Boys for worship songs? And he said, well, we want unbelievers to feel very invited when they come in here. And we don't want there to be any obstacles for them to come. And so we want to make it an easy transition for them going from the world right into the church. And so I, I mean, how do you respond to that? Not well, probably not very loving. I think we're a loving church. I do. Uh, Gary said, you know, when, when people come, 
I think they do feel very welcomed. I think we do good, and that's been amazing. I actually love hearing all the testimonies of people when they join the church. One of the things they say predominantly is that, man, I was greeted. People really love me here, and, and I, I love that. But, but honestly, like, if you get offended here, I'm totally okay with that when we preach God's word, too. Like, I want us to grow in the Word of God. And if the Word of God convicts you, I'm praising God about that. I'm not sitting there going, oh man, did we convict someone with God's Word today? That's the point. Every time we open it, we're being transformed that we'd be made more like Jesus. It ought to convict us every single day. And when people are coming into the church, it should look pretty different. We're people who have been made new and have the Spirit of God dwelling with us. We live for the glory of Jesus Christ, an entirely different king than what the world would live for. So we ought to look different. People ought to come and say, they're kind of a strange group of people. They do weird things. They baptize people and put them in water. Why do they do that? It should be strange. There's going to be a culture shock because we're a different culture. And yes, we should embrace things that are similar in many ways, but we're different, and that's not something to hide from. So let's move on to what Paul now tells Timothy. In this letter, 2 Timothy, Paul is encouraging Timothy to endure. He wants him to stand firm in his faith. He wants him to persevere as a pastor. He knows it's difficult, so he says, Timothy, This is what I want you to do. This is how you will stand firm. And so uh, we're going to look at what do you do, Timothy. And from verse 10 in chapter 3 all the way through chapter 4, this is what he is telling him to do. So number one, Paul says, remember Paul's example. Remember my example. We see that in verses 10 through 13. And Paul, very much in contrast to the ungodly people that he listed in in the beginning part of chapter 3, He describes how he has lived a godly life. And he says, Timothy, you have seen all that I have done. And next, he says, remember what you have learned and believed. We see that in verses 14 and 15. Paul says, Timothy, remember what you have learned and believed, the scriptures from your childhood. And when he says sacred writings, that's referring to the Old Testament. And notice he says in verse 15, The sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I hope you know this. When you read this, this makes you wise for salvation. When we open up this word, we're understanding the gospel. We're understanding who God is, how he has saved us. So when you read this, be encouraged. You're becoming wiser. Right now, we're all growing in wisdom. Isn't that good news? Every time you leave Sunday, you're smarter. Isn't that cool? You might not feel it always. But you're growing in wisdom every time. Every day you open this, you're growing in wisdom. Now the next section is the one that we're going to spend a little more time on. We're going to eventually go through 2 Timothy, and we'll unpack all of this a little slower. But right now, I want to focus on on how Paul is emphasizing the word of God. And so in verses 16 and 17, really Paul is saying, remember the word, Timothy. So right after Paul has reminded Timothy, you've learned, you've believed scripture, you've become wise um, according to salvation through Christ Jesus. And then he says, all scripture, referring to both Old and New Testament, 
is breathed out by God. What does it mean when we say Scripture is breathed out by God? Where the word breathed out by God is theonoustos. It's a fun Greek word. You can all use that later at lunch. And it means inspired by God. It means that the Scripture is produced by God. It comes from God. It is literally the air that God breathes out. So as God is breathing out, that's His Scripture. That's what we have here. And so I want to give you a definition of inspiration. Um, I I think it's up here on the screen. This is what it is. Um, This is how we define inspiration of the Word of God. The inspiration of Scripture refers to that act whereby the Holy Spirit came upon the authors of Scripture, causing them to write exactly what God intended while simultaneously preserving each author's writing style and personality. This supernatural work of the Holy Spirit upon the human authors means that the author's words are God's words and therefore are reliable, trustworthy, and authoritative. Now that last line really shows the importance that words of the Bible are God's word and thus reliable, trustworthy, and authoritative. So when we open up God's word, this is not like logging on to Pinterest like I have a Pinterest account. There's things I like. There's things I don't like. There's things I think are cool. There's things I don't think are cool. It's a pretty fun website. Get lots of ideas for decorating your house. But that's what they are. They're neat ideas. Opening God's Word is not like opening up Facebook where you get thoughts, opinions, gossip, slander, just a bunch of things like that. Most, probably most of the things on Facebook are not true. Um, when we open... God's word were coming to the very words of God. And because God is holy and perfect, it means his word is holy and perfect. Another word that we often use when we talk about scripture is the word inerrancy. And so I have a definition for that too that I just want you to be able to know. When we talk about inerrancy, we're saying scripture is true and all that it affirms and it does not err in all that the biblical authors assert, which means you will never come across a lie in scripture. You will never come across a lie in scripture. Every word you can trust. Do you know that every word? In Galatians, Paul uses the word offspring that is used in Genesis to say that all the way back then, this one word refers to Jesus Christ. Paul is basing doctrine on one word in the Old Testament. Regularly in the New Testament, we see the authors quoting Old Testament. We saw this in our our Christmas series with Matthew quoting the Old Testament over and over and over again, saying it's fulfilled, it's fulfilled, it's fulfilled, showing that all that is written in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It comes true. Now today, there are popular pastors, I mean very popular pastors, who are trying to make the Bible easier to digest. So they say things like, it's okay if you don't believe all the Bible. It's okay if you don't believe Jesus actually did the miracles that he said. It's okay if you don't think the walls of Jericho actually fell down. It's okay if you don't think that Mary, uh, Jesus was really born of a virgin. It's okay. You can almost pick and choose the things you want. That's okay. It really doesn't change the message. 
But yeah, it actually, it does kind of change the message. It, it actually changes everything. Like, because God's word comes from God, it reflects the character of God. Therefore, if God is holy, then his word must be holy. If there's errors in the word, then what we come to understand is that there's errors in the God of the word. Therefore, if the word is full of errors and therefore not holy, then the God who inspired the word would then be not holy and would be full of errors. So yeah, it, it matters a lot, our understanding of God's word. Never listen to someone who tells you what parts of God's word are optional. At that moment, walk out of the church. At that moment, turn off the podcast. Whatever you need to do, throw the book away. Burn the book. Don't just throw it. Don't recycle at that moment. It's okay to burn books then. Use it for kindling if you don't have a fireplace. I have a wood-burning stove. I would love to do that. Denying the word of God. It's like someone who's about to jump out of an airplane and say, you know the parachute? You can use it. You don't have to use it. It's not really going to change anything. Actually, yeah, it will. One ends in death, one ends in life. You deny the word of God, that path is going to lead to death. Because you're rejecting the very authority of God, the sufficiency of God, the truth and holiness of God. There's another word that, that we talk about a lot when we use the word of God, and it's the word that Timothy is especially highlighting at this moment, and it's the word sufficient. Look at verse 16. Here Paul says, All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So here Timothy, he's struggling He's got, he's got this group of unbelievers who are coming within the church, not to understand the gospel, but to actually cause division. How is Timothy going to handle this? How is he going to love them? How is he going to handle this situation? Well, he needs the word of God. Paul doesn't say, well, maybe if you go to the gym, you kind of work out, you'll become a little stronger, you'll be better equipped. He doesn't say, you know, there's a conference coming in town, there's a seminar, and it's about how to be culturally relevant. Why don't you attend that? You'll know how to better associate with these people. Timothy doesn't need anger management. He's struggling with how to love them. Paul's not, well, here's six steps to kind of anger management. Go to this class, and then you'll be able to know really how to love these people. What Paul says is you need the word. Scripture alone is what equips us as believers. That's what Paul says. He says, Here's the problem, Timothy. There's going to be ungodly people regularly coming into the church. The church is going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. What do you need? Well, I've given you an example, Timothy. You've learned from the sacred writings, Timothy. And Timothy, all of Scripture is sufficient. That's what you need, Timothy. Depend upon the Scripture. That is what will teach you, what will correct you, what will train you, so that you will be equipped for every good work. When Jesus was attacked by the devil in the wilderness, what did he do? Did he grab his six steps to overcoming demonic activity workbook and say, well, let's work through this one step at a time? No, he quotes scripture. And Jesus is a man inspired by the Spirit, showing us, demonstrating how we are to live by the Spirit. 
And so upon faith in Christ, we receive the Spirit that we would then do what? Use the Word of God as Jesus did. Hear this. There is nothing that will equip you to love your husband or your wife or your kids or those you work with more than the Word of God. There is no TV show, self-help book, or anything else that will make you more like Jesus than God's Word will. You see, the gospel, it's not about making a better you. I hope you know that. Like The gospel is not intent on improving you, on making you a nicer person. It is not that goal at all. It's about making a new you. You understand that? It's not about improving who you are because before faith, what are we? We're, we're dead in our sins. We're rebellious. Well, I don't need to be a better rebellious person. I need to be transformed. I need a new heart. That's what God's Word does because it testifies of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came and died on a cross that you and I would be forgiven of our sins, adopted into the family of God, that we would be made new forever. Like 2 Corinthians says, you're now a new creation in Christ. So it's not like we need to be improved. We need to be made new. That's why we come to Scripture. And that's why upon coming to Scripture, we remain in the Scripture because not only do we come to faith by the Word, but we grow in our faith through the Word. Psalm 119, verse 9 through 11. This is, this is one of those neat passages. You can just memorize this one. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your Word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So what, what we have here in this passage, not only in Psalm 119, but also in 2 Timothy 3, is what we call sola scriptura. Is that God's word is our final authority. And so I have a definition here for you. This is what we mean. Scripture, because it is God's inspired word, is our inerrant sufficient and final authority for the church now i do not mean that it's the only authority i don't mean that there's no other truth there's other truths you know scripture actually doesn't talk about gravity at all does it but we know gravity is true right so we know there's other true things outside of scripture but the ultimate authority the final authority the authority that trumps all other authorities if there's ever contradictions is the word of god there's one more section. It says we begin chapter 4. In 4 verse 2, we have Paul saying, preach the word. Paul tells Timothy to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, meaning be ready all the time, Timothy. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So in the midst of being surrounded by a group of ungodly people, of people coming within the church, who don't really want to hear the word, who aren't really interested in the gospel, who aren't really wanting to love other people, Paul doesn't say, well, it's time to change our method. We have a different kind of context now. So what we need to do is we need to change our, our format. He doesn't say only teach the easy parts of scripture. He doesn't say, well, you don't want to offend them. So what we're going to do is we're going to want to be gentle and we're only going to want to preach for about 10 minutes, maybe. If you can, go 15 minutes. After all, people nowadays, especially in the 21st century, we don't have an attention span. I mean, we can watch a movie for three hours, but 
10 minutes in the Word, that's going to be pushing it quite a bit. So we want to keep it simple, use lots of good illustrations, because we've got to keep it flashy. We've got to keep things moving. That's the way you want to go, Timothy. Paul doesn't say that. What, what, what he does, actually, and this is amazing. Now, just think about this. Paul's, or Timothy's struggling. Paul's saying, endure, Timothy. Hold on to the Word. And then Paul says, let me remind you the corrective aspects of God's Word. Things like reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Paul's not telling Timothy to stand down at all. Rather, he's saying you take the word and you herald the word clearly for everyone because that's what they need to hear. The people who are coming for their own purposes within the church, they need the word. It's through the word that they're going to become saved. In Mark chapter 1, we read about God, or about Jesus, preaching and then doing many miracles. And it's fascinating. He preaches, and in Mark chapter 1, we read that they're in awe of his teaching. And they're saying, I've never heard a guy with such authority. This is amazing. And then what does Jesus do after that? He begins healing. He heals a paralytic. He heals a demonic person. He heals uh, Peter's mother-in-law. And then we're told all these people come with these people who need healing. And Jesus heals them all. Massive crowds are forming around Jesus. Night comes, they go to sleep. The disciples wake up in the morning. They look for Jesus, he's gone. They find him, he's out praying. And then they simply say, Jesus. There's more. They say, everyone is looking for you. And Jesus then says, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why he came out. Now let's just think about it. Let's put some worldly wisdom on this. You want to be a good, strong leader? You want a big following? You have a crowd right now. The preaching thing was good. People came. People were in awe. They actually liked what they heard, at least some of them. But Jesus, when you did the miracles, that's when they came in droves. That's when they poured in. That's when the rooms filled up that we had to go out to the courtyard because there were so many people. Don't you remember Jesus? So the word is good. Let, let's keep doing that a little bit. That will kind of be the primer. But Jesus, we've got to capitalize on this. Let's get the crowds in here. But Jesus says, we're going to the next town now to preach the word. Healing is good. Healing is good. And, and healing the people that he did is amazing. And we love to see healings today. We love to see people healed of diseases. We love to see people, uh, marriages saved. So many things like that. And those are good. But the number one thing you need, the one, number one thing I need, the number one thing the world needs is it needs the word of God. That they would hear the gospel and that they would believe in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. But people, they love the sensational. And we have to remember this. People love the sensational. They love the miraculous. They love the flashy. They love what we call the holy goosebumps. Don't you love those? If we just get those every dime, wouldn't that be amazing? But that's not what we need. What we need is the Word of God. And we don't need to add to it. We don't need to subtract it. We don't need to dress it up. We just need the Word of God. Of God. Romans 10 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. If you're here today and you're saved, it's because somebody shared the Word with you. That's why you're saved. That's why you're saved. 
anyone you know that's not a believer, what they need to hear more than anything else is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what they need. Timothy needs to be reminded of the power, the authority, the inspiration, the sufficiency of God's word. That's what makes him bold. That's what's going to help him to persevere. It's what we need today, too. It's what's going to make us bold. It's what's going to persevere us in our faith. Parents, there is nothing your kids need more than the Word of God. You can have them get all A's in school, but there is nothing more important than the Word of God. When you start thinking about all the sports and the activities that they're going to be in, you need to every time talk about how is this going to affect our, our gathering with the church, our reading of the Word. And when it begins to, to trump the gathering of the church, the reading of God's Word, it's the activities that get pushed aside every time. And that's different. We don't see that in churches today. What we see is godly Parents raising their kids to be worldly kids. And we consider it successful if our kids get all A's and they get academic and sports scholarships. And if they don't know the word of God at all, we think that's okay. They'll just get it later. There's nothing more important than you training your kids in scripture. That means having regular Bible reading times. Regular Bible reading times. And if you're here and you're a parent and you go, what does that look like? I'll sit with you and we can, we can talk about it. I do it a dozen different ways with my kids. We try all these different formats because we just want to keep practicing it, working it, refining it. It doesn't really matter what you do, but as long as you're trying to regularly expose your children to the Word of God. The best way you will love your spouse is through you knowing the Word of God. Pray for your spouse. It's good to pray for your spouse. But read the word that you would be regularly changed by the word. Because as you become more like Jesus, you will show your spouse Jesus in everything that you do. Your neighbors, they need you to invite them over for coffee, for dinner. They need you to go help them with projects outside. They need you to love on them. And those are great. Because you know what all of that does? It paves the opportunity for giving them the word of God because what they need is the word of God. And your neighbors need to see you living like Jesus. And the way that takes place is regular reading and being transformed by the word of God. You can read a ton of relationship books. You can even read a lot of good Christian books. I, I, read, I read a ton of Christian books. But you know what a Christian book is? It's a book other than the word of God. And so they're good, they're helpful, but nothing replaces the Word of God. So don't think because you had 20 minutes in a devotion today uh, of just some worldly or some good Christian book, it's great, wonderful. But let that move you towards Scripture. We gave out a bunch of Bible reading plans last week. Uh, we probably should have done that again this week. I don't know why we didn't do that this week. That's an epic fail on our part. But good news is there are Bible reading plans on uh, the ministries table out there. And if you type in 2017 Bible reading plans on your Google, guess what? You'll find a lot. And if you still can't find one, let me know and I will email you a list of them. Um, 
the women's Bible study has started. I encourage you to jump in on that. There's two other Bible studies that are going to be starting in February. We'll give more information about that next week. I want you to wrestle with, how are you currently in God's Word right now? How are you currently in God's Word right now? Just, just wrestle with that. Are you in it or are you not in it? Are you giving it two minutes a day or are you giving it ten minutes a day? Our time in God's Word should be something that grows. If you've just become a believer, I would expect it to be lower at times. But as you've been a Christian for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, our time in God's Word ought to be growing exponentially there. And so I want to encourage you, how are you growing in the Word of God? Are you maturing in God's Word? Listen, when you open God's Word, you're hearing the very Word of God. Do you know that? Every time you read this book, you're hearing the very voice of God. There's people today who said, man, I just wish God would speak. Guess what he does? 66 books, thousand-something chapters. I don't know how many verses. 60-something thousand, I think. It's a lot of God's word in here. And according to God, he's saying, this is literally the air I breathe out. When we open this, we're hearing God. And there is nothing sweeter. There is nothing more beautiful. There is nothing your soul needs more every day than this word. I want, to, I want to close. Just a quote from John Calvin. John Calvin is um, one of the other reformers. Probably one of the most influential reformers. Probably one of the most influential uh, theologians, Christians who have ever lived. He wrote this. Let this be a firm principle no other word is to be held as the word of god and given place as such in the church than what is contained first in the law in the prophets then in the writings of the apostles so basically saying in the bible and the only authorized way of teaching in the church is by prescription and standard of his word meaning we don't add doctrine this is our doctrine this is all that we need. I want to close. I just want to encourage you. I, I hope you're in the Word of God. And just so you know, when you read God's Word as a believer, you're doing exactly what the Spirit is leading you to do. You know that? The Spirit's leading you to do it. Therefore, when you read, it's an act of faith. It's an act of obedience. It's an act of worship. Every time you open the Word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it comes to us with your full authority. We thank you that it comes fully inspired by you, that it is without error, that it is true in everything that it asserts. God, I pray that we as a church would be a people of your word. I pray that if there's anyone here today that does not know your word, that has not been reading your word, that your spirit would work in them and that they would have a desire to open your word and it would be an insatiable desire, one that cannot be quenched and they would read it more and more and more and as they read it, you would grow their love for it and for you. And God, I pray that we'd be a church that clings to your word and that we would embrace sola scriptura and we would not ever let the primacy of your word deviate from this church. 
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a gift of grace to us, that we would know you, that we would know what you have done in your son, Jesus Christ, that we'd come to understand faith, and that we would grow in our understanding of you. Father, may we be bold with your word. Help us to share your word with our kids, with our spouses, with our neighbors, with all that we come in contact with. God, we thank you for your word. In your name, Jesus, amen. Quick, if you want to take a seat, you can for a moment. Might be helpful. Uh, The question is, is I've heard it expressed that unless you have received the gift of tongues, you are not saved. How does this work? What would would the point of tongues be if no one is there to translate or no one um, of another language to hear? Um, So actually, I was talking to someone about this earlier today. There are, are, are churches... Who, and this is found all the way back in 1 Corinthians 12, that they have said, well, you really need to have the gift of tongues in order to really be saved. Or what they do is you might be saved, but if you really want to be a strong Christian or a better Christian, you need to have the gift of tongues. So it's kind of like a two-tiered Christianity, or it's simply like the, the gate to Christianity. You have faith in Christ, that's good, but do you speak in tongues? And so at that moment, what we're doing, and we'll look at this more in two weeks um, when we look at faith alone. Next week is grace alone, so just be prepared. Next week's grace alone, then faith alone. Um, But uh, that's essentially what the church was doing uh, 500 years ago. They're adding doctrine. They're adding things to Scripture, adding things that need to be done. If you really want to be saved, if you really want to be forgiven, then you need to speak in tongues. Then you need to do this, which... Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that not everyone's going to speak in tongues. He tells us that we're all different parts of the body, so you're going to be gifted in a way, I'm going to be gifted in a way. So like arms and legs and noses, they're all different parts of the same body, but they have different functions. I don't expect my arm to do the same thing that my leg does, so I should not expect everyone in the body to look like me. Therefore, we're going to be gifted differently. That's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 12. And going into 1 Corinthians 14, he makes the point. He says, I speak in tongues more than all of you speak in tongues. And so he says, even those who speak in tongues are some with greater abilities and less. But the point is in those verses that not everyone will speak in tongues, but we're held together through our unity in Jesus Christ. And so again, anytime you hear someone saying, great, I'm glad that you believe in Jesus Christ, but do you do this? But do you do this? Then that essentially is adding on works to our salvation. And in about five weeks, we'll start the book of Galatians. Now, Galatians was a massive uh, book that was used throughout the Reformation as a herald of justification by faith, saying we don't add anything to the gospel. And that happens a lot today. The thing is, today, uh, we're not as, as ready for it, I don't feel like. I don't think we're, we're trained to be looking for these things. Um, but there are many ways that churches today, denominations today, are adding works to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we must be aware of those. Um, and, and speaking in tongues is one of those that has been used as a work uh, to add on to salvation. So if you ever hear someone say, you have to speak in tongues, then you go back to Scripture and you say, where do you see that? Because we don't see that anywhere in Scripture that one must speak in tongues in order to be saved. We see that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're saved. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Again, it's the five solas. It's what we're going to herald all year long here um, as we 
as we're kind of celebrating the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation. And so hopefully that's understandable if you have more questions about tongues. It's, pretty, uh, it's a topic that's talked about a lot, so if you have more questions, I'd love to talk to you about that. Um, I'm going to pray, and then one last song. I'm praying and we're dismissed. There we go. All right. So, Father, we love you. We thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you that salvation is by grace through faith. It's not a work that we do. Thank you, Father, that you have done everything for us through your son, Jesus. God, may you just fill us with love, with thanksgiving, and with grace because of that. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. Have a wonderful day.